Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as professor of law at NYU and senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Obamacare at the Supreme Court. All right, Richard, so we have the Supreme Court this week hearing oral arguments in this case about whether the subsidies for low-income consumers under Obamacare can be applied on exchanges if they're run by the federal government. The, the text of the statute seems to suggest that they're only available on the, the state-run exchanges. And we, we should know, by the way, that the state-run exchanges are a decided minority. It's only 13 in, in D.C. that have set, up, set it up. So the Obama administration and its defenders have said, look, in essence, this was a typo. It's clearly counter to the intent of the law. Uh, does that argument carry any water with you? Well, I mean you have to understand what the typo argument is and the intent of the law. They're very different propositions. Mm. There is a doctrine known as Scrivener's Error, which means if you leave out the not that has to be in the sentence, then you put it back in. Uh, but this is not that kind of a slipper and oversight. This is a provision which is internally coherent. It's a provision for which you can drum up a rationale that was in fact given at the time by at least some people, which was that this was an effort to make sure that states would actually set up the exchange knowing that their citizens would lose the benefits if they were put on the federal side. Um, so at this particular point, the question then is how you integrate general intention with specific provisions, and the usual statutory rule is that the particular takes control over the general. Uh, these are all rules that apply if you don't care about the outcome. That is, it's one of these typical run-of-the-mill cases. Not at all clear when you ramp up this discussion so that millions of people are at stake that somebody's going to follow that rule. Um, Tom Griffiths, who decided this case in the D.C. Circuit, you know, is an extremely methodical judge. He's not at all ideological. I mean, he's basically a read-it-by-the-book guy. In fact, I tease him since we're friends multiple occasions because he doesn't strike down enough things that I think ought to be striked struck down. For him, it was a straight matter of statutory construction. And what he did is he insulated himself, I think, from the very large political questions of what is going to happen if this thing is in fact struck down. So I think in effect that the standard rules of statutory construction are not minutely in favor of uh, the fact that the department went over. I think they're strongly in favor. Let me put it to you the other way. Just imagine that the statute gets put into place and the Republicans are now in charge of its implementation. And what they do is they write a memo which says that uh, established by a state means established by a state and therefore hold that the subsidies cannot be provided for under the federal government. Um, pro, under federal government plans. Well, at that particular point, could you imagine some Democrat coming in and announcing, you know, uh, that's clearly wrong. The broad intention of the statute was to do it this other way, and you have to do it in that direction. That argument would die. Um, and the reason it would die is because the statute is reasonably clear as a plain meaning matter. Uh, there are people who say, oh, you know, it's only four or five words. That makes it an easier question rather than a more complicated one because there's no other provision out there which is in tension with this one, nor is this one misplaced. The New York Times had a kind of a comical argument against the sort of literary and literal interpretation of the statute. Where they say, this is a matter which deals with benefits and credits, and it's located in one obscure provision that deals with, oh, benefits and credits, right? I mean, in effect, the statute was exactly written in the way in which it was done, and it may be a small 
portion of the overall statute, but there's no other inconsistent text anywhere else. And if all you've got to go on is general intention, my guess is that this will lose by normal construction rules. So I call this 5-4 and striking it down is what I think is the likely result. So if that's the case, Richard, if the text doesn't seem all that ambiguous, at the same time, no one seems to be expecting – as you just said, a, a unanimous opinion. And, and indeed, at the appellate level, you had the Fourth Circuit rule unanimously in favor of the government. Um, a lot of conservatives dismiss that as liberal justices simply sort of privileging their political predilections over the, the black letter law. But is it is it that simple or do progressives actually approach the interpretive issues through a different lens? Well, I think you're right. Remember, these are the same people who believe in the living constitution. Um, and what that does is it morphs in some sensible way. Now, normally it takes a couple hundred years or at least a couple of decades or generations for a constitution to morph. But that sort of suggests an attitude towards language which is somewhat different. And their attitude is you look at the overall purpose and if the language doesn't seem to be congruent with the purchase, you rather than give up on the sort of the grand purpose, what you give up on the textual language. And so what they would say is the purpose here is to get universal health care. Everything should be treated as a means to that single purpose and so therefore you read it more broadly. That's the argument that took the Fourth Circuit by storm. That's the argument that Harry Edwards did and as a matter of construction – Certainly courts have done things like this on other kinds of cases, so it's not completely unprecedented, which is why you have to sort of think it. What's, what's extraordinary about this is the amount of efforts rather concerted to vilify anybody who disagrees with that particular interpretation. I mean, so you see the New York Times and its columnist Timothy Egan writing thoroughly you know, vituperative pieces about it. Um, my friend Mike Greva, I think, was very impolitic to go to the CPAC meeting and start talking about killing the bastard or whatever language he uses. I think as a general matter, as an academic, I never go to political meetings because I don't want to be in a position where I start saying things like that, which can be used against me or the causes I believe in. You remember, Troy, that I wrote about this on ricochet.com and it was quoted in full the relevant passages in that Oklahoma case that also struck it down. And what I said is, you know, this is a very sad occasion that we have to have this kind of litigation uh, because it meant that the whole process was so mishandled from start to finish that you're now leaving thousands and millions of innocent people caught in the lurch between two situations. It should not be, by the way, assumed that the only people who really care about those are those who've acquired policies under the exchange and will lose their subsidy. Um, the Wall Street Journal, you know, a kind of covered piece on this thing said, look, um, there are many people who dread the day that they're going to be forced to supply this coverage under the employer mandate because they don't have the wherewithal to do it. And so they're hoping and praying that they will not be caught in this particular net before it brings it down. So it's not as though all the dislocations go on one side of the situation. It turns out that there are many, many people who are praying that this thing will in fact succeed so that they will be relieved from a set of burdens they don't really think that they can carry. To that point, let's assume the court does rule against the administration. I ask you sometimes in these shows to give me the, the day after scenario. What changes in Obamacare if the White House loses? Some people have talked about that prospect as, as tantamount to a judicial repeal. Is that an overstatement? Well, sure, because you're only basically reinforcing the statute as it existed, so everybody on the state exchanges is still safe. Um, they're going to be essentially a huge number of very sort of dangerous and difficult decisions that people are going to have to make. One thing is, of course, many of the red states will now find the pressures really very, very strong 
to decide to back off and to establish a local exchange. Uh, then they're going to realize that it takes a long time to do this and that the result may be too little and too late. Uh, if you want to try and get these coverages that are in place, already in place, uh, the exchanges are going to have to do something else. And you're going to have to say expedited approval. Anybody who has managed to get coverage under the previous thing through the federal exchanges is automatically deemed qualified under the state provisions. You know, you may get something to do like that. There's some people who have argued very sensibly, I think, to say you want to transfer these programs over to the state level, and then what you do is you get rid of some of the really very silly provisions in the bill having to do with essential minimum standards that you have to keep with. The standard argument is every woman now has to take out insurance against pregnancy and so forth, and it turns out some of these women are single and 62 years of age. It doesn't make a lot of sense to force them to buy something that they don't really want to have. I think Paul Ryan and his group in the Wall Street Journal this morning took something of that. So you'll see that argument. The Democrats have the following tactical advantage, in my view, which is they can say, look, you just fix this. What you do is say effective such and such a date, um, established by a state exchange means established by the federal government when the state either fails or refuses to establish one. And then we just go on with business. It's a very coherent position. They can rally everybody around it. But remember, the president at this time controls neither House of Congress. And so what the Republicans will do is say they come forward with this, let's run it through the state kind of proposal in one form. And now what happens is uh, the Republicans and the Democrats in the Senate, rather, will have to face the question of they're going to try and filibuster this. And what the Republicans will now say, the Democrats are the party of no. They're the ones who are preventing some rational change which will give coverage and get rid of some of the most unpopular features of Obamacare. And the Democrats will come back and say, you're wrecking a grand system which ought to be preserved in its integrity. I don't know who wins that public relationship battle. I never estimate President Obama when it comes to his ability to sort of tweak at the hard screens in one of these global debates. He's very effective at doing that, even if he has very little understanding as far as I'm concerned as to the genuine confusion that his particular statutory scheme has reaped. So, I mean, it's just open up in all sorts of given ways and literally somebody's chance remark or something, some hint in the opinion that's going on may change the debate so that everything that I've said turns out to be just completely off base. I mean, you know, this is not a game in which you want to be the expert in prediction. Um, I don't think it will necessarily be chaos, but certainly if that result came up, nobody could say, I didn't see you. And there are a lot of people who've sort of play the interorum card. How dare you put this nation back into that kind of turmoil? Just uphold the darn thing. And if you have to swallow twice on the linguistic point, understand that sometimes you have to rise above principle. Fiat justitia, fuat nihilum, play justice reign, though the heavens may fall, need not be, they will claim a constitutional imperative. And then the other guys will say, if we manage it correctly, and we realize that many people will benefit from the striking down of this particular provision, uh, you can't overdramatize dramatize the situation in that direction. Let me ask you one more question about the judicial side of it. There seems to be a rough consensus emerging that Justice Kennedy and Chief Justice Roberts are going to be the ones to decide the outcome of this case, that you basically have the other three conservatives guaranteed to rule against the government and the four liberals will side with the administration. Uh, what in your judgment would be the key for either side to win those two over? What are the kind of arguments that may work with, with Roberts or Kennedy? Well, I think the arguments that will work with Kennedy is different from the arguments that will work with Roberts, at least mm. if you're looking at this from the conservative side. Remember, it was Justice Kennedy who started off with the proposition 
that the Commerce Clause is not something which requires you to enter into commerce so that the government could regulate you. And that was a complete surprise in the NFIB hearings a couple of years ago. And it didn't just sort of happen. It was a bomb that was planted at the outset of the oral argument. Well, I think, in effect, that he is already willing to say that I can blow things up if it turns out the Constitution doesn't allow it. And now, you know, figuring out what the Commerce Clause says is actually a lot more complicated than figuring out what the statute says. So, Unless he decides to buy the, oh, my God, I can't bear to face the consequences argument, which you, know, you can never ignore, he is, I think, going to be safely online. So I think it's likely that it will be four. Now, Justice Roberts is a different guy. Remember, he was the man who did the flip and decided that this thing wasn't covered by the Commerce Clause but was covered by the taxing power. He was the only person at this late date you know, who thought that the taxing argument actually worked. Most other people thought it was so weak that it wouldn't even get certiorari because not a single court looking at it down below had actually seen it. Well, to him, constitutional prudence is if we come in here and invalidate one of these programs, that's a very heavy situation. Not clear he's going to think about this on statutory issues where the texts are cleaner and the fix lies within the power of Congress to put together. But on the other hand, he may say my principle is I'm not going to intervene. Um, applies to all big cases, whether they're statutory or constitutional, and so therefore he has to move. It's very clear what's the strategy on the left is. There was a piece by a man named Barnes, who's I think the Supreme Court correspondent for the Washington Post, and it ends with a quote, quote from a guy named Yost, who's been very prominent in the opposition to the conservatives on the liberal forefront, and he says, you know, the legitimacy of the Supreme Court will be impaired if they take these arguments on the other side. Now, these guys try to make their life easy, by pretending that there's no conflict between the statutory language and the general kind of purpose, um, the New York Times does the same thing. My view about it is that to some extent this is a high-risk strategy that can backfire. Chief Justice Roberts may say, look, I'm my own man. I don't like it when people are starting to use these general phrases to intimidate me. One of the reasons he says I got into trouble the last time with the conservative groups is that they thought that intimidation took place and that he in fact – judging from internal evidence about the opinions, changed his mind very late in the process. I have no idea of what's going to go on, but I think that he is by and large somebody whose primary goal is to have the insulation of the judiciary from political pressures, which means in my judgment that both he and Kennedy are more like not um, to decide that the uh, a decision that was made by Tom Griffiths will be upheld. And I might add, since it comes from Griffiths, it's not coming from a firebrand libertarian. It's coming from a guy who's upheld a lot of statutes, including some that I think he should have happily struck down um, against various kinds of constitutional challenge so that you have a moderate Republican writing this opinion, not one of us fire-breathing libertarian types like Osei Me. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.